So as I said, we are in Matthew, I'm not sure if I said it, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, you can turn there. Today we begin a look at a fulfillment of Jesus' words, which he said earlier in his ministry. And we've looked at them before. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And today we begin, which will probably take us four or five weeks, a look at the events in which Jesus does indeed give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it's been a while but a while ago, we were looking at Matthew chapter 21. So flip back just a little bit in your Bible to that chapter. And you may recall that it was in Matthew chapter 21 that the events of the last week of Jesus' life had begun. That Jesus had arrived at the city of Jerusalem. He had been making his way for about three weeks or so down from Galilee to the area of Jerusalem. And as Matthew 21 begins, he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And as we said, there was quite a bit of fanfare with his entrance. We call that Palm Sunday. We call that the triumphal uh, entry. And that began the last week of Jesus's life. Now, Jesus would then go into the city. Uh, he overturned the tables there in the temple of the money changers. He would engage with the religious leaders. Tensions were growing. There were problems that were developing and so on. Matthew would then go on to spend five chapters uh, from chapter 21 to chapter 26 on those couple of days there. Uh, it's John, the gospel writer of John. He would spend almost half of the gospel on the last week of Jesus's life. John chapter 11 to John chapter 21 is on the last week of Jesus's life. So there's a lot of material that is happening that is given to us in the scriptures regarding this last week. And so when we started Matthew 21, we studied that October 22nd here as a church. That was three days ago in Jesus's life. There's a lot of material in between here. So now as we come back to chapter 26, you'll notice it begins with this linking verse, a verse which kind of takes you to the, the passage just before it. Matthew chapter 26, 1 and 2 says, When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now notice that there's a linking phrase there in the verse where it says, When Jesus had finished all of these sayings. The all of these sayings refers back to the past two chapters, chapter 24 and 25. It refers back to the Olivet Discourse. One of those days during Jesus' last week of his life, he was in the temple. He points to the Temple Mount area, points to the building of the temple, and he said, you see this building, all of these stones, not one will be laid on top of another. And it prompted the question, when will the end of the world be, Lord? In their mind, the only thing that could cause this building to come down like that is the end of the world. What will be the signs of the end of the age was the question. And then Jesus went from there and he began to talk about what we looked at for the last four or five weeks, the signs of the end of the age. The Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25 of the book of Matthew. Now, the next phrase that he says, the next statement that he says is in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So he was just talking about when he would come to the earth and reign in glory, and then he transitions to the very next sentence saying, you know that in a couple of days the Son of Man is going to be crucified. 
It's, it's as if, I wonder, if it's as if Jesus anticipated with all of this talk about the end of the world, they may have looked past the fact that the crucifixion has to come first. And maybe he can read it on their faces until he says to them, in two days the Son of Man will be crucified, or however the phrase is exactly worded there. It's as if he's saying, before all of that can happen, this must first happen. The Son of Man must give his life. And so immediately following his discussion on the signs of the end of the age, Jesus reminds them in verse 2 that Passover is coming and that the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. Now, we know this. We've been looking at Matthew, if you've been with us. This is not the first time that Jesus point-blankly has said that he would give his life on behalf of others, that he would go and be crucified. Three times already, Jesus has clearly told them of his coming death, of the coming death, his coming death at the hands of the religious leaders. So in Matthew chapter 16, it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be killed and on the third day be raised. That was about a month before where we are today. And Jesus said, the Son of Man will be killed and on the third day raised. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Matthew chapter 20, it says, the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, will be delivered over to the chief priest scribes that will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised. So three times in the last month, he's very clearly told them what's about to happen. Now, a fourth time, Jesus speaks of his coming crucifixion, this time only a couple of days away. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, amazingly, his statement seems to elicit no response. You would expect, to be like, oh my gosh, Lord, two days, we should get out of here, or something. Now, maybe there was a response not recorded for us, but as far as the passage is concerned, there's no response. There was, there was initially the response of Peter a month ago where he said, this shall never be, Lord. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're doing. And maybe everyone's like, I ain't saying anything, you know, whatever. Next time he brings it up, maybe they were thinking it. But here we are now. Jesus is alone on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. He just gave them this lengthy teaching about the end of the world. He just made this statement now, the Son of Man is about to be crucified, delivered up and crucified. That's happening on the Mount of Olives. Now remember, you have the Mount of Olives, then you go down the Mount of Olives through the valley, the Kidron Valley, and there's Jerusalem. And somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders have gathered together. And we read about them in verse 3, and it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, they gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Dramatic pause. So with the Passover at hand, I've mentioned this before, the city's population would have been significantly larger than normal. It would have grown exponentially. The typical size of Jerusalem uh, around that time of uh, history was 20 to 30,000 people lived in the city. But when the feast happened and occurred, the numbers would jump six times as high. So they estimate that it was somewhere around 150,000 people were there in Jerusalem at this particular week uh, of the Passover feast. So that's a lot of people. The historian Josephus, we reference him a lot. He recorded that at this particular Passover, 
the Passover associated with the, the death of Jesus, in his history book, he recorded that there were 250,000 sacrificial lambs sacrificed at that particular Passover. Now, rabbinical tradition at the time was that at least one lamb per 10 people and no more than, than 20 people could a lamb be sacrificed. So if we just take that, the higher of those two numbers, if there's 250,000 lambs sacrificed and it's one for every 20 people, you're talking about a million people, two million people that are there in the city. And if, if Josephus is correct, obviously we see the numbers really have swelled quite a bit. And so with numbers like that, with the parade that just occurred three or four days earlier in which people are putting Jesus up on a donkey and essentially declaring him to be the Messiah and having him come walk into town as they reference Old Testament Psalms and they sing praises to him, it's no wonder that the chief priests and the elders realize that they have to be very careful with what they do here regarding Jesus. That if they just go down and they slap the cuffs on Jesus or whatever, the crowds might rise up and they might have an uproar, and it would turn out worse. Notice what it says in verse 5 there, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Not during the feast. We'll do it another time when everybody else goes home, whatever it may be. Let's just start plotting. Let's start planning. Come Monday, everyone's leaving anyway. We'll be fine then or something. We'll get Jesus as he's on his way out of town. Well, that may have been their intention. But as we're going to see with these events, they're going to fall smack dab in the middle of the feast which I think is another indicator that the Lord is entirely control of everything that is going on here. That the betrayal of Christ, the arrest of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, that none of these things are events that have spiraled out of the control of the Lord. That he's sovereign in all of these things. He's in control and he's accomplishing his purposes. And so we have this guy Caiaphas. Caiaphas, as you see there, is the high priest. We're going to be introduced to him a lot during the next few chapters we're also going to be introduced to a guy by the name of Annas, the high priest. And we'll, when we get to that, we'll explain what it is. Essentially, one was the retired high priest and one was the current active high priest. But we see that this guy Caiaphas at the helm, the religious leaders gather at his home and they develop a plan to arrest and ultimately kill God's Messiah. Now think about that. The religious leaders of the Jewish people gather together to kill God's Messiah of the Jewish people and of the whole world. So that's what's happening. Those are some of the events that are taking place. Notice the timing of all of this. It says that uh, this is two days before the Passover, verse 2 points out. Now, Passover would have begun on the Thursday night of that week and continued up until the Friday night of that week. And so their days are different than ours. We start, you know... Essentially, we started sunrise or whatever. It's a new date. I know it's midnight, folks. Don't be alarmed here or whatever. But for them, essentially, the, the new day began when kind of nightfall came. The new day began. So let's say it's like 6 o'clock the night previously. Uh, so we're, we're somewhere either in there. If it's two days before, we're looking at either Tuesday night or sometime on Wednesday that this is happening. The next event that we're going to look at, though, is actually before that. So it's complicated. Jesus says in verse 2, it speaks of, you know, in two days from now, Passover is going to happen. Well, this next event we're going to look at actually happens four days before that. So if you read verse 6, it says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. 
Now, this particular account is recorded for us in the book of Mark as well as in the book of John. It's John chapter 12. I believe it's Mark chapter 14. And in John chapter 12, and I I think there are certain times when you're reading the Gospels, it's very helpful to read all three or all four as they talk about an event because it gives you a full picture of it. We, we distributed a while ago something called the Harmony of the Gospels that we put together to, to help us with that, see what, what are the information that each different gospel gives. But here's what we learn in John chapter 12 about this event. It says, now six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and so they gave a dinner for him there. The general rule is if you're raised from the dead, you get a dinner in your honor, apparently. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we learn a few other things as we piece together all of this info. Again, Mark 14, John 12, and here in Matthew 26. We learn from Matthew chapter 26 that this is in the home. It's in the town of Bethany, and it's in the home of Simon the leper. As perhaps an error there in our Bibles. Maybe it should say Simon, the former leper, because if he was currently a leper, no one's going to his house for a meal. This is Simon, the former leper. Presumably, Jesus had healed him at a different point in time, and he's going to throw this particular meal. The second thing we learn, besides Jesus, the guest of honor at this meal is Lazarus, who John reminds us in his passage that Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, again, that's John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus raised Lazarus. It's recorded for us in John chapter 11. So it's an event that occurred just before this meal. And say, hey, you have plans for tonight or whatever? No, I don't have any plans. I just came from the grave or whatever. Great. Come on, we're going to have a meal. It's going to be at Simon the Lepers. And so he comes over. So we know the meal's at Simon the Lepers. It's in the town of Bethany where Lazarus lives as well. Uh, and Lazarus is one of the guests of honors here along with the Lord. Third thing we discover is this, that is that a woman comes to anoint the Lord. We see that in the Matthew passage, but we learn the name of this woman, and it's a lady in John 12 whose name is given. Her name is Mary. Now, there are a number of Marys in the Bible. This particular Mary is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This particular Mary is, a mention, is mentioned, her name is used 11 different times in the Gospels in three different accounts. So there's three different accounts in the Bible of this particular Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. First time we see her, Luke chapter 10, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus as he's teaching. She's sitting there taking it all in, a, grou- a crowd had gathered and she's learning. That event takes place in her home. Uh, that she shares with her brother and her sister. That's Luke 10. Next time we see her, she is falling down, John 11. She is falling down at the feet of Jesus, and that's associated with the events connected with the death of her brother Lazarus. So we see her there in that particular place. And then we see her now in this particular passage. Notice again where she is. She's at the feet of Jesus, and she's anointing the Lord's feet with a costly ointment, and she's wiping them clean with her hair. Now, Mary, I think rightly, has been described as a worshiper of Jesus. And, uh-huh. and every time we see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus, giving him the praise that he is due. She's a worshiper of Jesus. But not only is she a worshiper, and it's interesting, in all of her worship, never once you hear a song. 
She's not singing to him. She's simply praising him. We'll talk about that. Now, not only is Mary a worshiper, but she is an impractical worshiper. Sometimes our worship has to be impractical. And she's an impractical worshiper. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When she is found at the feet of Jesus and teaching, there it is. It's a, it's a home Bible study. The place seems as if it's packed. And we hear her sister, who's Martha, in the other room, essentially saying, hey, this isn't fair. I'm doing all of the work. And you're sitting in there at the feet of Jesus learning the Bible or whatever. And I'm running around making all the sandwiches or whatever. And Martha interrupts Jesus and says, make my sister help me. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to make her help you. Well, he didn't say it exactly, but he says, Martha, Martha. It's like, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You're anxious about many, many things because there's many things to do, but Mary has chosen the good portion. And she sat at my feet to learn from me. And so we see that first example. Plenty of work to be done for the king, but right now what was needed was to sit at his feet and learn from him. You know, for me, that reminds me of when I have a busy day that is scheduled ahead of me and I'm going to be running all around and all kinds of things to do, but what is needed first is I take the time to sit with the Lord and I ready myself and I prepare myself for the day that is ahead of me. Or maybe, let me rephrase that. The Lord readies me and prepares me for whatever might come my way with the day ahead of me. Mary has chosen the good portion. The tasks are there, but they would have to, be, they would have to wait for later. And I think that's a good point for us as followers of Christ that desire to serve the Lord, whether we're professionals at this or not, but we want to serve the Lord with our lives. I think it's a good reminder for us is that we can get so busy running around and doing all the tasks that we can crowd out that private time to be with the Lord. And it's a big mistake. And, and Mary realizes that and the Lord commends her for that. That's the first time we see her. The second time we see her is four days after her brother had died. And that time of worship doesn't make sense either. So the first time doesn't make sense because you've got a lot of work to do. The second time, her brother had just died. They had put out a call to Jesus. The one you love, your friend is sick. Come, heal him. Jesus decides not to come right away. He delays. He doesn't get there in time. Lazarus dies, and Lazarus is buried away. That's how long of an inter, uh, time in between has taken place. Now, had Jesus come earlier, according to both Mary and Martha, her brother would not have died, is what they tell him. It says in John 11, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it's interesting because when Jesus comes into the town, first Martha goes and encounters the Lord, then Mary comes separately and encounters the Lord. They don't go at the same time together, yet they say the exact same words to, uh, to the Lord. Both of them say the same thing, which tells me when they were sitting back in the house together, they were talking about it and came to the same conclusion. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Now, despite the fact that things didn't go the way she would have liked them to go, Mary nonetheless worships her Lord. And I think that's sort of an impractical thing. It's hard for us to worship the Lord when things aren't going the exact way we would like those things to be going when the prayers that we are asking aren't being answered the way we are asking them. And a lot of people will say, well, you know what? I'm done with the Lord. 
the Lord had an opportunity to show himself strong and he didn't. And so I'm not interested in following him anymore. Will you follow him? Will you worship him when the circumstances don't dictate that it's easy to worship him? And that's what Mary does here. And it's another example of being an impractical worshiper, so, so to speak, Despite the fact that the circumstances were not good and going the way she would have wanted them to go, she nevertheless maintains her confidence that the Lord is good and that he's worthy of her adoration. And so she falls at his feet. Yes, she says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But then she follows it up and she gives him the praise that is due his name. You can look at that in, I guess it's John 11 or so. And now we have here Matthew chapter 26. And it's a third time we see Mary falling at the feet of Jesus. I'll reread those couple of verses. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she pours it on the he- his head as he reclines at table. So she comes to Jesus with a container of, notice what Matthew says, very expensive ointment. Again, we have this story in another place in the scripture. John tells us that the disciples estimate that the value of this ointment is 300 denarii. So John says, Judas Iscariot in particular says, why has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, again, a denarii was a day's wage. So I don't know what you make in a particular day, but let's just assume you make $100 in a day. I think that's a pretty fair estimate of what, you know, this group might on average make on a particular day. So if it's 100 bucks uh, or so, and it's 300 days wages, we can safely approximate the value of this ointment as somewhere around $30,000. So this lady takes this ointment worth maybe $30,000, and she goes in and she pours it out on the feet of the Lord. Now you hear that, $30,000. Think of all the things we could do with $30,000. You could feed the entire homeless population of the city of Trenton for a month or more on $30,000, probably a lot longer than that. You think of all you could do with $30,000, and now you're beginning to understand the objection of the disciples. You come in here, it's very nice that you love the Lord, but you're wasting all that money, pouring it out on the Lord's foot the way you did. Notice the disciples respond. Again, John tells us it's Judas in particular. It says that they, when they see this, they are indignant. And they say, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. $30,000 dumped on the floor. What are you doing? Why such waste? That's so impractical. Think of all the money that we could have used other places. Matthew points out again that they were indignant. Indignant means to be greatly afflicted and to be sore displeased. What are the things that cause you great affliction? For me, an Eagles game, great affliction. When that thing comes to an end, I'm thinking, why did I just waste four hours or whatever? But there there are certain things that move us to just anger and frustration. And my wife, why do you watch them? You always get mad. You know, why do you, but there are certain things that just move us to anger. Somebody else's worship, for me, it's hard to see how that could be the thing that moves me to anger. They're indignant. They're sore displeased, greatly afflicted. 
Essentially, they're angry with this in their mind, stupid woman doing this stupid thing that she does. But there's one person in the room that's not angry. And verse 10 tells us this, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. It's as if Jesus is saying, all of you, in particular you, Judas, may think this silly woman did a foolish thing, but I think what she did was beautiful. Her act of worship may not have been very practical. Practically, we could have done a lot with that $30,000, but it was effective. And here's what I mean by that. She had come to worship the Lord and move the heart of the Lord. And that's exactly what she did. And I think a lot of times we come to worship, and again, a lot of times we equate worship with singing songs, and that's an aspect of worship. But worship is what you do unto the Lord for the Lord. And so if it's in song or whatever, but a lot of times we, we come to the Lord in our time of singing and our goal in that is we want to be moved. Man, I just want goosebumps. I just want to feel the presence of the Lord. I want the Lord to fall. I want him to, to move my heart. That's not the goal of worship. It's a mistake on our part when we think that's the goal of worship. The goal of worship is to move the heart of the Lord. The goal of worship when all is said and done is for the Lord to say that was good. My heart is touched by these guys gathering together to give praise to me. And that's exactly what happened in this instant. In this instance, the heart of the Lord was moved. She rises up, she defends the Lord, and she says uh, to the guys that are there, or excuse me, he says to the guys that are there, what she did was beautiful. My heart was moved by it. So it wasn't necessarily practical, but it was certainly effective. Now, Judas will add, well, what about the poor? Again, we learned that from John. Here the statement is, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. What we learn from the Gospel of John is the poor person that Judas is really concerned about is poor Judas. Because Judas was the treasurer. Judas had all of the money for the team. When, when Judas would, when they would arrive in the town, Everybody else would eat. Judas is the guy up at the counter paying the bill and keeping the receipt for Charlotte Flansburg uh, because she's going to get all over you if you don't have the receipt or whatever. So Judas, though, keeping that money bag, we learned Judas was dipping into the money bag and putting some in his own pocket. John 12 says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into the money bag. What they called waste, Jesus called beautiful. Nothing done for the Lord is ever wasted. Charles Spurgeon, he pointed out, it might rather seem as if all would be wasted, which was not given to the Lord. And the Lord understood that, Mary understood that, and she gave this to the Lord, despite Judas's objections and all the rest. Now, in addition, let's go back to Matthew 26. Part of the rebuke of their thinking, Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. (coughs) Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now we know Judas's motivation from John, that he was a thief and he was stealing the money and he saw 30 grand, you know, going out and thought how much he could have uh, siphoned off of that for himself. Perhaps Jesus is addressing with this statement the rest of the disciples here in mentioning the poor. 
Maybe it was that a word from Judas convinced about the poor, and we could have gave it to the poor, convinced the rest of the, the disciples that this money could have been used in a more wise fashion, better spent on caring for the poor, taking and, and all of that. And so maybe Jesus is taking note of their response, which causes him to make this statement. But either way, he says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, you should not construe this statement to suggest that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. If you just jump in and look at it, you could. And well, not, not my problem. Why should I? You're always going to have poor people with you. Why bother uh, trying or whatever? Jesus has spoken about caring for folks in need in the very previous chapter where he talked about the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, and so on, and how he would commend folks for caring people in those circumstances. If you look at the entire testimony of Scripture, you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the laws that were put in place, they were put in place with the poor in mind. So the testimony of Scripture is that the Lord cares for the poor. But, he, but here Jesus says, but the poor you will always have with you. So Jesus is talking about two separate things, not talking about caring for the poor, but essentially what he is saying is this, you will have plenty of opportunity and you've already had plenty of opportunity to care for the poor, but you will not have plenty of opportunity to do what this woman has just done on my behalf, and that is prepare my body for burial. And again, it's as important this ointment on my body. She has done it for me in preparation for my burial. Despite the fact that Jesus had been telling these disciples for a month now that he was about to be um, arrested, crucified, and buried, it doesn't seem as if they're really hearing him because they're not responding as you might expect. This woman, though, she is hearing him, and she's responding. And so she does what she can do in preparation for his burial. Here is a woman that, though her act of worship may not have been the most prudent financially, as I said, it moved the heart of her Lord, which, again, is exactly what we're supposed to do in worship. And so they are thinking practically, she impractically, and she's the one that's moving the Lord's heart. Now, notice verse 13, what the Lord adds. He says, truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later, fulfilling Jesus's very prediction. And we're telling the story and we're learning from this woman and the way in which she worshiped the Lord. Now, Matthew continues, verse 14. It says, now then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, Matthew introduces to us Judas as if we don't know who Judas Iscariot is. Uh, many of us, we were very familiar with Judas Iscariot. His name has gone down in infamy. I can't imagine anyone here have a kid named Judas Probably not. You probably maybe a dog or something like that, but you wouldn't name your kid that. He's gone down sort of in infamy historically. But Matthew introduces him to his readers. But notice what he says. He says, Then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve apostles, uh, he is. And as one of these twelve apostles, he is one of the men that would have walked and talked with Jesus over the last three and a half years. He would have sat with him in private counseling-type sessions, discipleship-type uh, sessions. He could hear the teaching of Jesus. And sometimes we hear teaching, and we're like, yeah, I'm not really sure what that means. 
but we just file it away. We'll figure it out, you know, when we need to figure it out. But he's one of those guys that separately over tea before bed could say, could I ask you a question about what you said earlier? And we see the disciples do that. He's right there with this crowd. For three and a half years, he has a front row seat to watch and to listen and to observe all of the things that Jesus is saying and doing as part of his earthly ministry. And despite all of that, what we know about this man is though he was around Jesus, he didn't actually know Jesus. And as we said, we already saw that he was a thief dipping in to the money bag, that which was put into it. And so he's a guy that's around the Lord, but doesn't actually know the Lord. And I think the reason why Matthew includes this event here, even though it happened four days earlier, or six days before the Passover, four days earlier than where it's listed in Matthew, is perhaps to, to point out to us there was something about that encounter which set Judas off to do what he was going to do. And so Judas, maybe it was the open rebuke, as the Lord rebuked him, him and them there, maybe that set him over the edge. Perhaps it was something that had been building for a while. He jumped in on the Jesus train when it was kind of riding high and fast, and everyone was like, this guy is something else. You should be there if you want to be on the cutting edge, top echelon of society. Now Jesus is talking about death and crucifixion and betrayal, and the signs seem to be that the, the opinion of the leaders is against him. This guy's never going to be the Messiah. I'm getting out now while I can, while I'm ahead. Make something off of this in the process. Perhaps it's something like that. People have tried to discern for years Judas's intentions. What, why did he do what he did? Why is a close confidant of the Lord just kind of turn as he, he does here? There are some that have even suggested that Jesus, excuse me, Judas agreed to betray Jesus to force Jesus's hand. That he believed Jesus was the Messiah, but he just needed a little kick. You know how like your kid can swim, but he's afraid or she's afraid, and so you just throw the kid in or whatever, and then the kid's going to have to do it, or the bird with the nest, all that. That's horrible. Is that like against Dyfus nowadays or something? All right, we don't do that anymore, apparently, or so. That he's trying to force Jesus's hand, that Jesus, once he's kind of put in this predicament, will have to rise up and be the Messiah. Some have suggested it's something like that. I believe the obvious reading is the best reading, that Judas was a man that had been overcome with his greed and he wanted what he wanted. And now that it became clear that Jesus wasn't going to take him to the top echelon of society, then he would discard him and he would get what he could get in the process. And so as we see in verse 15, he agrees to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Now, wow, 30 pieces of silver, that sounds like a lot of money. In that day, that was maybe $25. He agrees to betray the Lord for what would essentially amount to $25. In fact, if you read in the book of Exodus, which we were reading on Wednesday evening, and, and it kind of jumped out at me here, it speaks of 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver in the book of Exodus and the Old Testament Mosaic law was the price for a dead slave. So if I had a, an animal that killed somebody else's servant, I would have to pay 30 pieces of silver for the price of that dead servant. And that's the price that he believes Jesus is worth. That's the value that he had placed on Christ and he was willing to betray Christ for. Now, juxtaposed with the story of Mary, you have one lady coming in and she expends $30,000 worth of precious ointment. 
and you have another guy willing to trade out, out Jesus or sell out Jesus for 25 bucks. And so from that moment on, Jesus, Judas looks for an opportune time to deliver Jesus over to the religious leaders, we read in verse 16. Verse 17 continues, Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man, say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Two terms, two phrases that start the sentence there, the statement. And that is, it speaks of this, the feast of unleavened bread. And it speaks of, and it uses the word, the Passover. So you have the feast of unleavened bread. You have this term, the Passover, that these things are drawing near. The feast of unleavened bread and the Passover are actually describing the same thing, or at least part of the same thing. The feast of unleavened bread was one of three mandatory feasts on the Jewish calendar in which all able-bodied males were required to come up to Jerusalem. And typically they did and they brought their whole family with them. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is one of three mandatory feasts. It's introduced to the Jewish people in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. It's expounded upon elsewhere in the scripture. We learn from the Bible that it was a seven-day feast that it would take place in the springtime every year, the Hebrew month of Abib, and that that particular month on the religious calendar of the Jews was to be the first month of the calendar. So it takes place in the springtime during the first month of the Jewish religious calendar as its name implies in preparation for the feast. Each Jewish family had to rid their homes. The word is their quarters, the place where they stayed, had to rid their homes of all forms of leaven. And we learned that this feast was was supposed to be both commemorative and symbolic. That, it was, that is, it was to look back and it was to look forward. So Exodus 13 says, unleavened bread shall uh, be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen in all of your territory. Now it was commemorative in that it com- commemorated the time when the Jewish people fled Egypt in haste, which is recorded for us in the book of Exodus, that there was no time for the bread to rise. They They fled in haste. So it's commemorative of the exodus from slavery. It's symbolic in that leaven throughout the scripture is a picture of sin, which when permitted to remain in our lives, even in small amounts in our lives, will soon permeate every aspect of our lives. And so it's symbolic. And so ridding their home of all forms of leaven was a symbol of ridding their lives of all forms of sin which if allowed to remain would soon begin to bear all sorts of rotten fruit. So that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Passover. So the 14th day of the month of Abib was or is the Passover. Exodus 12 says, and you shall keep it until, spelling error there, forgive me, until the 14th day of this month when the whole congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the 14th day of the month is Passover. Days 14 to 21 of that month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So also in Exodus 12, it says in the first month, again, a smelling error, from the 14th day, two of them, of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. 
So when Matthew begins by referencing the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, he's referring to the same thing, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread has arrived and then points out to his, out how the disciples inquire about where he wants to celebrate the Passover. So the reference of both is we're talking about the same thing. Passover is the first day of the feast. Jesus says, go into the city and you will find a certain man. Now, Luke points out, that seems rather random, you know, okay, you know, big guy, little guy, chubby guy, skinny guy, what kind of guy? Uh, Luke points out that it's a man carrying a jar of water, Luke 22. You're going to go into the city, you're going to find a man carrying a jar of water. Now, that act was primarily the responsibility of the women, where they would go down to the well, they'd fill up a big thing of water, big pot of water, and they would bring that back to their home for cooking or washing, whatever it may be. So to see a man carrying a large jar of water would have stood out to them. And so that's why we have this reference here, a guy carrying a large jar of water, go to that man, say to him, teacher, excuse me, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now we've seen examples where Jesus seems to be a bit forward with the self-invites, coming over to your house, what are we having? You know, or something. We've seen examples of that. You may recall as he was marching through Galilee that he stopped at a tree. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today for a meal. Again, there's probably something cultural going on that makes that acceptable, where if you did it here, we would start talking about you a little bit and wondering things about you. Uh, where's your couth and all of that? But Jesus says to this through his disciples to this guy, the time is at hand, I'm coming for the meal today. I suspect there's something more than cultural going on. I suspect that Jesus has already set this up with this guy at a previous time in which he says, hey, you know, if you're ever in town, you need anything, the Passover. You want to celebrate the Passover? I got a big room. You got all your friends can come. And based on sort of that promise from before, Jesus is now sending his disciples and he says, go find that guy, tell him we're coming. How does Jesus know the guy's going to be walking on the street at that time with a pot? Because Jesus is Lord. And so he's able to point these out. Again, Jesus is in control of all these things. Nothing is out of his control in this. Nothing spiral out of control. And, and the cross isn't an accident. It was before the foundation of the earth that he would be given on our behalf. So he says, my time is at hand. Now that's a significant statement because repeatedly Jesus had been saying just the opposite of that statement that either his time or his hour was not yet. And so we see, we saw, in, and we pointed this out before, in John chapter 2, talking to his mom, and says to her, woman, why does this concern us? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, he tells his disciples, you guys go up to the feast. I'm not going up at this time. My hour, my time has not yet fully come. There were two different occasions where the crowds had gathered, and they were going to essentially seize Jesus. One of those, they were going to throw him off of a cliff, essentially. And it says that Jesus passes through the midst of them, and it's pointed out his hour had not yet come. Yet now, clearly, his, he states his time is at hand, and that his hour has come. That this was the time for which he left his throne in heaven to come here to the earth, to accomplish the purposes he, that he needed to accomplish here on the earth. The, the events that are about to unfold over the next 24 hours or so, are the very reason why he left his place in heaven and he humbled himself and he became obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross. 
because his time was at hand. Because after 30 years of walking on this earth, his time had come where he would present himself as the sacrifice that would take away the sins of man. When the Jews celebrated the very first Passover, that's exactly what they were essentially looking to, that the Lord would pass over their particular home. If you're not familiar, it's associated with the plagues that hit uh, Egypt there. And the final plague was going to be the death of the firstborn. Firstborn in all of the land, Jew, Gentile, didn't matter, Egyptian, not Egyptian, first uh, in all of the land would be killed unless the blood of this lamb associated with the Passover that I referenced earlier when we looked at Exodus chapter 12, unless that door was applied, excuse me, that blood was applied to their door, to the post and across the top of the door. And so they looked for this death angel, the Lord, to pass over them so no harm would come. And the Jews were instructed to do that, to apply the blood. 12.7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Look at verse 13. That the blood would be a sign that when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over them. It says, The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And for 2,000 years... As the Jews celebrated this feast, they would look backward and they would look forward. They would look backward to their deliverance from Egypt, but they would also look forward to God's Passover lamb, God's Messiah, who would come and not to deal with their slavery problem. That's what's going on in Exodus chapter 12. It's their slavery problem. He's going to deliver them. But when they would look forward to God's Passover lamb, they would look forward to the one that would deal with their sin problem and redeem them from their sin. For 2,000 years, the Jews were proclaimed with their words and with their actions as they celebrated this feast that they were waiting for the Passover lamb. And Paul the apostle would state it very clearly. He would say, for Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The time had come when Jesus Christ on the day of Passover would actually become God's Passover lamb himself. Wow, what a coincidence, huh? That on the very day he would be sacrificed. In just about 24 hours from this event, Jesus Christ, the unblemished one, would be sacrificed so that his poured out blood might be applied, so to speak, to the doors of each one of our lives. And the doors of our lives would be our hearts that God's judgment might pass over each of us as we come to the end of our days. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews, he developed this idea, and I'll just read this to you. In Hebrews 9, he said, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? The time had come when men's sin would not merely just be covered, 
as it was for those thousands of years, but where it could be removed entirely. The time had come for Jesus Christ to offer himself as a sacrifice on behalf of all those that would believe. And so Jesus instructs his disciples to go and prepare the place where they could celebrate this feast together. We read it in verse 19. Notice what, and the disciples did as Jesus directed them. And can I just add this to end? That's the exact attitude that any of us should have. It's a great definition of what it means to be a disciple. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. As you seek to live your life for Christ, do that. What Jesus tells you to do, do and walk in his ways. Amen, my friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your coming, the coming of your son on our behalf. Lord, I can't imagine what would have been going through my mind if I knew in a day the brutality of your arrest and so-called trials and the beatings and the crucifixion, if I knew that that was ahead of me, what would be going on in my heart and in my mind? And, and Father, it, it just uh, it amazes me as I look at Christ, as we look at Christ, and we see him considering others even in the moments leading up to his crucifixion. It amazes me that he would say in another place how how much he desired, he lusted to eat this meal with them, to celebrate this particular Passover meal in which he would point all that was going on there back to himself and how he would be prepared to pour out his blood and to allow his body to be broken on behalf of others. Lord, you amaze us. And Lord, you've won our hearts, many of us in this room, You've convinced us of our need for a Savior and that you alone can be that Savior. And in response, we've just kind of given ourselves to you and said, all right, Lord, I'm yours. I'm your servant. Do with me as you will. And so, Lord, just that final reminder of these disciples doing as Jesus directed. Lord, I pray that you would put your finger on areas of our hearts as we seek to walk with you, areas of our hearts that may be off track, kind of maybe going our own direction, doing what we want to do, doing what the rest of society is doing. And Lord, you would just imprint your finger on our hearts, revealing you're not following my ways in this. Repent and return and come after me. And Lord, we believe as your disciples that that's exactly the place we want to be, responding to your direction and your leading. And so, Lord, use your word to speak to our hearts, Lord, in the quiet places when we leave from here. And do a good work, a life-changing work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.